what I did is I tried to learn something from as many of the postdocs as I could, rather than you know latch myself onto one and be a nuisance to that one person, you know, for for a long period of time. Um, I spread out my uh, uh, my being a nuisance to as many as I could and learn something different from from everybody. Hi everyone, I'm Becky. And I'm Rohan, and welcome to After Office Hours, where we get to know engineering professors and leaders outside of the classroom. And hear about their passions, interests, and the stories about how they got to where they are today. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of After Office Hours. Today we had the honor of speaking to Dr. Brian Kobilka, the Nobel Laureate in Chemistry. Yeah, Dr. Kabuka was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, as Becky mentioned, in 2012 for studies of G-protein coupled receptors and has been a professor at Stanford University in molecular and cellular physiology and medicine. Yes, this was a really interesting conversation. We dove into some of his early experiences in science and medicine and talked about how he got to where he is today. Yeah, and as you'll hear, he talked a lot about you know, a lot of the failures that happened along his journey, right? I mean, studying these receptors, were in, this was an incredibly complicated and um, unknown field in the last uh, 20 to 30 years. And he talks about all those fascinating experiences. Yeah, I was really um, inspired by his humility and how he approaches research in general. Um, and I think you guys will be as well. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Dr. Kobilka, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, I wanted to get started by asking about kind of the beginning of your time as a scientist. Was there a particular moment, maybe a class you took or a subject you started learning where you decided and you realized at that moment that you were going to become a scientist, that you saw yourself as a scientist? I don't think there was ever any one memorable event. you know, I, from early childhood, I, I, I think I always wanted to be a doctor mm-hmm. and I didn't really equate uh, being a doctor and a scientist at the time. Uh, I, I, I did as I was going through my, um, my training. Well, first as an undergraduate, I, you know, I did some, uh, I worked in a couple labs and uh, I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't very, it was very descriptive. It wasn't all that exciting. Uh, and same as a medical student, we had to do a thesis project and it was because of the limits of time, it was, you know, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't, I didn't feel like I was solving any uh, uh, important problem. Um, and then it, it, it was just enough for me to be interested in maybe pursuing it further where I'd have more time in the lab and, and work on a more challenging project. And then it you know, when I had that opportunity, uh, it kind of gradually grew on me that this is what I wanted to do. It it wasn't, uh, there was no one, you know, special event. You mentioned that at first you didn't really equate uh, being a doctor with being a scientist. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about when, I guess, you started to connect those two things? Well, I guess in in medical school, uh, where you know, there, my classmates, several of my classmates were in the MD-PhD program. And, and of course, uh, 
the you know many of the faculty were physicians and scientists. So uh, it was a bit of a surprise for me. I mean, I uh, I didn't even know that an MD PhD program existed before uh, while I was applying to medical school. Right, right. So along those lines, after medical school, you joined uh, Dr. Lefkowitz's research group. Um, what was the hardest part about joining a rigorous research group as uh, an MD, um, working with scientists who many with whom were trained as PhDs um, as research scientists? Pretty in intimidating. Um, and these are really bright people. Uh, it was a it was a difficult lab for for postdocs to get into. I mean, it, it was. I never was able to actually count the number of postdocs there. Uh, it was just, I kept, you know, uh, getting lost after trying to go through each room, but it was probably in the range of 25 to 30 uh, postdocs uh, in, in the research group. And, you know, they were really, as I said, they were impressive. Uh, and many of them, um, it, it wasn't unusual for postdocs to be in the Lefkowitz lab for beyond five years. So. Uh, you know, they had established themselves um, not only as PhDs, but had a substantial amount of time in the, in the Lefkowitz lab. Um, yeah, that's all I can say. I mean, I, I really felt uh, like a very much a beginner and a novice. Do you have any advice for uh, incoming scientists who may feel, have a similar feeling of feeling, I know when I first joined the lab that I work in now, I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I felt a complete sense of just not feeling qualified. What advice do you have for young scientists uh, in a similar situation? Well, uh, what I did is I tried to learn something from as many of the postdocs as I could, rather than um, you know latch myself onto one and be a nuisance to that one person. You know, for for a long period of time, um, I spread out my uh, uh, by being a nuisance to as many as I could and learn something different from from everybody and uh, that you know that worked and that's sort of what I do with new people in the lab I I, um, I let them you know kind of migrate around and 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 work with different people and learn different things and you know eventually they'll uh, they'll gain enough experience that they don't feel like such a novice and they can plan their own experiments. Do you think there was a passive of knowledge in the other direction? Maybe as someone who was trained in medicine, did you find that there were things that you could, that other people in the lab, even those postdocs, as you mentioned, could learn from you? Mm, not really. <laughs> I mean, there's... It, it was it was pretty much all biochemistry, um, so there wasn't uh, there wasn't much you know if they were if they were doing mouse studies or you know physiology I, I might have been able to you know contribute in some way but not not really I, I wasn't yeah I wasn't worth much. So once you spent more time in the lab and, and really developed more of this experience, what aspect of basic scientific research really captured your interest and kept bringing you back to the lab day after day? And I guess year after year at this point. <laughs> yeah, I think it was um, trying to, maybe it was like trying to solve a puzzle or trying to answer uh, a, a question that nobody had the answer to yet. 
uh, whether it was, um, I mean, the first challenge that uh, that I took on in the Lefkowitz lab with a, with a bunch of, uh, of the uh, colleagues there was cloning, finding, finding out what a beta receptor really looked like. And uh, that meant uh, cloning the gene at the time. So you had an idea what the primary amino acid sequence was, and that was sort of the first step to understanding um, the, the structure. And that's just, you know, it's just the beginning. And then there's another step in, okay, what is, that's a kind of two-dimensional picture, but, um, you know, what parts of it are responsible for what functions. And, you know, you, you discover things that at that time by doing mutagenesis and functional studies. Um, and then ultimately, uh, to really understand how something works, you have to know what it looks like in three dimensions. And, and you know, so there, there were always things to discover that were unknowns. And uh, that always, I enjoyed the challenge and, and, this, and the discovery as well. You mentioned, I like that you mentioned that, you know, you sort of viewed it as a puzzle. Um, it, well, are there other ways that you find yourself sort of conceptualizing the research that you do? Some of the guests we speak to say, like they view their research as like art or just some other way to think about it. Is that, do you find yourself doing that? Hmm. I guess I don't. I don't think about it too much. Um, I, I I do think that uh, there's there are kind of different uh, elements to success, and um, I have some and I don't have others. Uh, and and some, you know, there are some elements to doing experiments. For example, some you can give two people the same protocol. And even you know, even if they've had you know generally the same experience, uh, and one person will always be able to either get a better yield or be more successful at completing, successfully completing the experiments than the other, and that's as close as I can think to to being kind of an art of science. So that there's just how how people really can, can um, kind of immerse themselves in an, in an experiment, in in, in in ways that other people are just sort of following a recipe. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I don't, I don't really think of it as in, in you know, as a sort of an artistic endeavor. What, what I do like uh, are the unexpected discoveries. So they're the expected discoveries. Like I'm going to get this clone and I'm going to, you know, obtain this structure. Uh, but along the way, um, you'll, you'll have experiments that don't follow the expectation, and you'll find that it's because there's just something new that you didn't anticipate. And, um, you know, there, there's still some mysteries that we've run up against that, um, you know, may, may, maybe it's been eight years since we first had this mystery, and we keep kind of dragging it out every, every year or two, and, and, and then trying to see if, you know, based on what what we've learned in the past couple of years, you know, can we now um, understand it or can we now uh, do additional experiments which will validate that this is a real phenomenon and not just some sort of experimental artifact that we haven't been able to um, fully understand. Along those lines, what do you think is the most beautiful concept in biology? I, I think, Probably one of the most, uh, I, I want to think, I think it's F1 ATPase. Um, 
it's this huge uh, molecular machine. Uh, you know, so in general, what I'm what I'm trying to say is is how protein structure determines function. And you know, I I love our our, our receptors. I think they're really interesting uh, as as well. But you know, these these mammoth and complex uh, assemblies of proteins that um, you know undergo very large structural changes uh, to, to mediate the function. Um, I, you know, I, I just think they're fascinating to watch. And uh, kind of that's the, I, yeah, that, that, that's what I, I consider in a way beautiful. Uh, and it, it just amazes me, you know, even though I, you know, I understand uh, we've evolved over billions of, of years, you know, to think that that protein evolved at all. I mean, just, it, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's so complex. Um, so, you know, these, these things still are mysteries to me and I, I kind of love to think about them once in a while. So you've probably over your career spent what seems like tens of thousands of hours, you know, thinking about receptors, structure, just everything about them. Just to put it plainly, do you ever get sick of them? Do you ever think about uh, studying something else or have you ever thought about that? Or has it mainly just been your fascination with receptors? I, I haven't really thought of doing something else, you know, completely changing directions. Uh, it's part because the, you know, the field continues to be more complex than, than we anticipated. Um, you know, at the time I started out, I think at least to my understanding, there was there were probably you know, maybe 10 to 20 GPCRs. And then, you know, over the next decade or so, we, we moved that up to 700. And there are, uh, there are some that we really understand quite well, like family A, um, but there are even some family A receptors the majority of olfactory receptors that we really don't understand very well. They're really complex um, uh, sensing devices in our nose that um, don't behave in many ways like other family AGPCRs. Uh, but they've, they're also some of the most challenging um, because they just don't behave well in any other cell system other than the olfactory neuron where they behave very well. So, um, you know, if, if I, I think that if, we had solved most of the you know interesting challenges of GPCRs. Maybe I would be looking for something else to do. But um, you know, there there's there just too many interesting things yet to understand. Take that question, I guess, a step further. If you had to uh, say, for whatever reason, no longer be a scientist and you had to choose a different career, uh, what what do you think you would do? I think I would have been um, an intensive care uh, physician. I, 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 I always liked intensive care medicine and uh, was more or less what I was planning to do when I went to Duke. I mean, I went to Duke to, be a, to do a cardiology fellowship. And at the time when you wanted to do intensive care medicine, you either did cardiology or pulmonary um, or anesthesia. So uh, yeah. That, that's that's what I would see myself as doing. Do you ever wonder, so I guess when you got to Duke, was it sort of a gradual process where um, were you still 
seeing and treating patients at that point? And I guess, when did, when did it happen where you sort of made uh, a greater transition to research and where, you know, most of your schedule took up research versus treating patients? Yeah, so that, that was actually a pretty conscious decision that uh, the, <clears throat> when I, as I said, when I first went there, um, there, there was an option of starting in the lab or starting in the clinic. Uh, to do your your clinical rotations or your or, or your research, and um, most uh, fellows at the time, if they did a research track, they do it maybe for a year and a half. So, um, you know, I had been a resident for three years. I had two small children and tired of being on call, so I chose to do research first. Um, if anything, just to be take a break and. For the, most of my first year, was a was just failure, um, you know, learning and and failing, and uh, eventually I got involved with the cloning project, um, which was a new project in the Lefkowitz lab. And the at the time, the Lefkowitz lab didn't have any molecular biology expertise, so Bob uh, arranged for me to visit Merck. They were collaborating with Merck on the cloning. And uh, I was allowed to go there. I think I spent four one-week trips there. Uh, I learned basics of molecular biology and cloning. And then I came back and he allowed me to buy whatever I needed to set up uh, you know, a cloning lab in the Lefkowitz lab. And then uh, you know, we, we started with, uh, with other people in the Lefkowitz lab, you know, screening libraries in earnest and eventually making our own libraries. Uh, and that, again, you know, almost entirely failures because we just, you know, never got the clone until we went from a what's called a cDNA library to a genomic library, and and then uh, we're able to pull out a genomic clone, and very lucky that it was, uh, it was intronless. I mean, from, from the human gene to pull out an intronless gene is pretty unusual. Uh, so we had the whole cloning, whole coding sequence uh, at the at the time. So that was probably one of the most exciting things that happened. Um, that happened, you know, quite fast. It was really clear we had a real clone, um, and then the sequencing showed that it was infrontless. And then, you know, this was what we were, you know, waiting for our first view of a beta receptor of a GPCR. Uh, and at that time, was it was probably about a year and a half into my uh, Lefkowitz lab experience. And I was more or less you know, scheduled to go onto the clinic. But, um, but because of you know, that success and the potential for um, you know, doing things with those clones, I, was, uh, I, I, you know, I, I begged for, time, for additional time in the lab. And, uh, and I, was, I was granted more time. I think you know, maybe six months or a year. And then uh, we did, we started doing you know, structure function work, chimeric receptors and mutagenesis. And I was uh, doing my first rotation, which was the intensive care unit, which was three months and uh, struggling to try to keep up um, with what's going on in the lab. Uh, my wife uh, was working with me and, and you know, she, she kind of helped keep things going. But you know, I realized that uh, if I continued to do my clinical rotations, I was gonna get left behind, that other people would do the most interesting things 
um, when I came back and, you know, and at, at the time, I, I think I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to be a cardiologist. Uh, you know, I, I pretty much stopped doing rotations. And uh, for the time being, I would do, I would, um, when I had to do, for example, like uh, cath rotations, I could trade someone for cath rotations with reading ECGs. So I spent most of my uh, clinical time reading ECGs, which you know doesn't qualify you for the boards. Um, and I, uh, ultimately, I, I think probably it was after two years in the lab, after that initial success and seeing what being away from the lab for three months you know, how, how, how anxious I was that everything interesting was going on without me. Um, I, I, I knew I couldn't, I, I couldn't continue um, with my fellowship. Wow. So you mentioned earlier that uh, this, this like big discovery happened about a year and a half after uh, failure after failure. Could you tell us a bit more about what that process was like and, and how you kind of convince yourself to continue pursuing um, this goal even after, I mean, a year and a half in like in terms of science isn't very much, but at the same time coming into the lab day after day, um, I'm sure it can add up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so that, you know, we, I, it was a really great group of, of, of um, you know, postdocs and, and a graduate student that I worked with and, um, you know, it, you know, we, we would get excited because we would have these positives. Um, you know, in, in cloning, we were using radioactivity to pull out, um, you know, hum, se sequences that we knew were homologous to uh, a part of the receptor that had been. So the receptor was purified by another postdoc in the lab, uh, and then chopped up into pieces, and and peptides were sequenced, and and those were used to make guest oligonucleotides that were used for. So, so you know, we we had a lot of you know a lot of really nice looking false negatives that you know we would it would be very exciting and we um, you know we'd sequence them and then find that they were uh, you know nothing not even a, a prolonged coding sequence, um, and and we'd go through many cycles many ups and downs. I guess it was just always the the thought that it it was out there we you know there was a gene for this receptor and it had to be obtained some by somebody at some point. Um, and we, we would occasionally have uh, what we call, I think, I can't remember exactly what we call them, but the sort of pre-celebration parties. So um, even even after, uh, you know, after uh, a horrendous you know, uh, disappointment of, you know, finding that this really, you know, nice looking clone, you know, was actually nothing, we would, we would occasionally go out and, um, you know, have just have a, a celebration in anticipation of eventually sometimes succeeding. And I don't know, it, it seemed to kind of keep us going. I think, you know, I think the other thing was um, there was always something new to try. Uh, it, it, we, didn't, we didn't just continuously kind of bang our heads and do the same thing over and over again. Um, you know, it was a new library. It was new, and a, a new set of probes that we, we, we generated. Um, yeah, kind of eternal hope. I think, I think as a scientist, you have to be, um, so, so one, one, of, one, of the, one of the, my colleagues, 
called it irrational optimism. Um, that uh, I like was with, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, and then you also mentioned uh, you took about four one-week trips to Merck, and I wanted to ask, um, you know, how was that collaboration? Did you, was it sort of, because of course now um, collaboration between industry and sort of academia has gotten exponentially more common, but how was it uh, when you initially went there, and did you think um, it was sort of a fruitful experience for you? It was definitely a good experience for me, yeah. Um, I think in, in a way it, it changed the dynamics of the collaboration. So uh, before I went, all of the cloning was done at Merck and all of the biochemistry was done in Lefkowitz lab. And the, the biochemistry had been pretty much done by the time I joined the lab. And so they, I, I think the Lefkowitz lab felt, at least Bob may have felt that, that the project was no longer in his control in any way um, because the work wasn't being done there. So I suspect he welcomed someone even just going and kind of seeing how things were done. Even I was the least qualified person to actually do this. And, you know, just I think at the time he was uh, trying to find something for, for me to do. So yes, something, you know, maybe I'll, I'll be good at something. <laughs> uh, so I'm not sure exactly all what his motives were, but at, at any rate, when I went there and I learned, um, you know, the basics, it meant that um, we could start doing some of the cloning at, uh, at Duke. And then, then I think it became a bit of a competition in a way. You know who who'd get the who'd get the clone first. Although, you know, for 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 the early days, we were still relying on on um, on Merck, uh, Richard Dixon, who was doing head of the project at Merck, to um, you know to provide us the libraries, and so they provide us libraries, and we'd screen them. But um, but eventually, you know, we made uh, we made the library. We, we decided to go for the genomic approach, and we sent them our library and. They initially pulled it out from our library, so that was really quite exciting. That um, we made more than just a, a technical contribution. Um, so uh, yeah, it was it. it uh, the dynamics changed, but the, I you know I, I still think that it was overall you know a pretty collegial um, experience for both of us. They they of course then you know became competitors with with subsequent work like you know structure function studies um there was no need for they didn't need us and at, at finally we didn't need their technical expertise either so you know friendly competitors i you know i would assume that at times i guess there was a sort of a race to make these discoveries either you know with with other organizations as well you know how how stressful is that in the moment i mean I know that competition is supposed to sort of for like good discovery and you know sort of more fast-paced discovery, but on the other hand, it can sort of lead to an unhealthy race. What is your take on that? Yeah, I mean this 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 seems to have you know cropped up many many times um, in my career where uh, you're trying to do something that has you know that's a really great interest to a number of labs, and so uh, the cloning was. Um, 
uh, highly competitive with, with predominantly two other labs. Uh, one uh, was um, Elliot Ross, who was you know, a fantastic GBCR and G protein biochemist who was working on the turkey beta receptor. Uh, why you might ask the turkey beta receptor? Well, um, in Texas, where uh, he is at UT South Southwestern, apparently there are turkey farms and uh, turkey erythrocytes have huge amounts of beta receptor. So it was a great source of natural protein. And he, uh, where the Lefkowitz lab used um, hamster lung, uh, which was their source of receptor for purification, uh, Elliot Ross used turkey uh, erythrocytes. And so um, he had, was collaborating with uh, Genentech uh, with a cloning. Okay, and you know, that's a formidable uh, industry uh, company. And then there was a there was a Japanese group um, who was also you know really good at uh, cloning, so we, they were doing a muscarinic receptor. So we 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 had we knew this competition uh, was out there, and it turned out that I think um, Elliot Ross and Genentech got the clone about the same time we did, uh, but I think in the Turkey beta one there was a, an intron, I think there was some, he didn't have the entire sequence. Uh, and, and so I believe we, you know, we, we, we published first, but they published you know, very shortly after. And then not much longer after that came the Japanese group. Um, and you know, sim similar experience uh, happened with uh, the first, our first crystal structure um, where you know, several groups were, um, working towards the same goal and, and succeeded pretty much uh, you know, within months of each other. And, and of course, it's, uh, what makes it worse is that you hear rumors and um, rumors can get really uh, completely crazy in terms of their, um, their, their, their veracity. I mean, some of them are, you know, appear to be completely made up uh, and others just in the telling get, you know, get mutated as you go from one person to the other. Uh, but I would say, you know, the cloning, the, the cloning rumors were, were quite hot and heavy. I don't think I was, um, it, I didn't have a lot of anxiety over that uh, in part because, you know, I hadn't published anything um, before this and I wasn't really aware of the whole, you know, importance of being first and it, there were just a lot of things a lot of the um the, the experiences people have in, in doing research and publishing and and you know talking about the research i you know i i just hadn't i hadn't had that experience so I, I wasn't as anxious probably as bob was um and uh the, the other thing is bob was he was really a very um, good cheerleader uh you know he he knew i think he knew that this was uh had a potential for you know people being very um kind of upset if if we did uh didn't you know do it first or didn't discover the the clone first and and you know people had spent so much time and effort that you know he kind of managed expectations in some way he would come and and just chat with us as we were trying to do our work and, uh, you know, uh, 
rather than adding to our anxiety, it seemed to perhaps uh, alleviate it to some extent. I would say with the, with the, the crystal structure, th there I definitely felt anxiety. <laughs> um, and I, uh, very much so. And, and rumors there were uh, also, uh, they were flying around and, and um, actually there was, <laughs> there was one rumor that I think helped me out. Um, I, was, I was sort of running out of money um, because the because the the uh, the crystallography project was really expensive. I mean, you know, uh, producing protein and essentially throwing it away when it didn't get, give you crystals. Um, you know, most almost all the our efforts failed, and um, we had we had finally gotten crystals, and I was um, uh, running up a deficit. And unfortunately, at the time, our uh, departmental administrator and grants management. Uh, person wasn't really on top of things. Uh, and I was probably a couple, well, I won't say how much, I was significantly uh, in the red. And one of my, uh, it, it was, it was a, a former uh, Lefko lab. He wasn't a postdoc, he was a visiting scientist at the time uh, who had, uh, who, who was in industry in, in Denmark. And he called and said, I, you know, how is the, how is the, clone, how is the uh, crystallography project coming? Um, he said, I heard that someone has, has a crystal structure um, that, you know, that's someone else. And I said, you know, we're really, we're really close. We have diffraction quality crystals, but we're kind of running low on funds. And I don't know whether I'm going to be able to keep this going. And uh, within, within a week, he had sent me a gift of $100,000. From his company uh, to uh, to help with the project, so um, you know th that kind of uh, that unexpected uh, largesse was um, in part the result of of of, of rumors. It, it turned out that I mean there, I I knew who was working on it. I, I mean, and one of one of uh, I had a, a good friend who was my major competitor. Um, and so they were the, they were the ones to um, that were my closest competitors. Uh, the others didn't turn out to be um, real. That's that's crazy to hear a hundred thousand dollar gift. Wow. But yeah. do you do you think that this competition is necessary? I mean, like to some extent, you think that if all of these groups were sharing data and sharing um, their progress, I guess like the big science would progress at maybe perhaps like a faster rate. Um, do you think that the competition is necessary to um, get people going and, and instill them, instill in them the, the drive to continue? Or I guess, do you think it's a feature or a flaw of the system? Uh, I think, well, let me tell you what I, what I think um, perpetuates it is that, uh, Publications matter a great deal in, in a postdoc getting a good job. And not just publishing it, but where you publish it. So if you're first at something, there's a good chance you'll get Nature Science or Cell, right? If you're second or third, uh, well, you know, you might 
not get uh, a journal with the same impact. And while I don't think that matters so much everywhere, it does matter a lot, for example, in Europe and Asia. Uh, so, and, and that kind of, comp that kind of um, pressure to publish in very high impact journals really stifles competition or stifles um, collaboration. Because if you help somebody else, they might get that, you know, that structure before you do, and they might get that publication and, and get that job. Um, I, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying that I think that uh, is the reason why we don't do more open collaborative science. Uh, that's not, and it's not true in all fields. I mean, it, it's particularly competitive in my field and, and for people getting jobs. Um, but there's, you know, there's an effort to, to be more open. Uh, for example, you know, preprint uh, publications are now uh, uh, one step towards that, at least making, making your discoveries um, available. Uh, I had, I, you know, it, it may take you six months to publish a paper, but you know, if, you're, if your data is out there, as soon as you submit that paper to Nature, you also submit it to BioArchives. So I, I think we're heading in the right direction. I just think um, there has to be a better model for how, how we evaluate people for jobs. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I have a solution. And a lot of those people who are sort of focused on conducting basic research at a high level, it seems like it often requires a lot of like intense dedication and focus on a specific set of experiments. How often did you take the time to like step back and just look at the larger picture? And do you have any regrets or wishes if you had done it more or less often? You know, I think that happens sort of automatically when, when you, you know, when, when you make some sort of discovery, uh, then you're in the process of writing the paper. I think you, you do have to step back and, and try to fit your discovery in the context of a sort of larger, uh, the field and maybe even um, other fields, other related fields. Uh, you know, if you, if you wanna make, if you wanna make your, um, your publication interesting, it has to have some sort of story. It has to, have, it has to sort of tell, you know, tell a bit of a story and, uh, and, and provide you with some new insights. And in writing, you know, it's kind of an iterative process, but you, you, you do have to kind of reassess where you are and, and why what, you, what you've just done is important in a, in a broader context of, of science. You were talking about competition before, and obviously all of the groups that you were in competition with and your lab yourself are working at a very high level. What factors or characteristics do you think distinguish scientists who are at this very high level making these big breakthroughs with uh, others who are more, I guess, middle of the pack? I, I don't think I'd I don't think I'd want to uh, sort of compare, you know, myself or, or you know, my colleagues with. I mean, the middle of the pack. You know, there have been times when I've been in the middle of the pack, right? Uh, so, I. I I don't think it's. I don't really want to make that distinction, um, but maybe I'm going to maybe I'm going to answer something uh, that you didn't really ask, but I think is still important. 
So I, I, one of my um, sort of major competitors is also, you know, a good friend, and he's probably one of the most uh, sort of um, altruistic scientists that I know. He he does things for the right reasons. Now, when he he had been working on getting he had been working on getting a structure of the turkey beta receptor. So he he ended up sort of following uh, the Elliot Ross story and getting getting the clones for the turkey receptor and then expressing it and purifying it and, and trying to crystallize it. And at the same time, I was trying to do it with human beta two receptor. And he had he had experience. Uh, he was also one of the uh, first people to crystallize rhodopsin, which is a, a you know closely related protein to the beta receptor. So he, he had actually experience in crystallography and he was developing at, at the synchrotron in Europe, uh, what's called micro-focus crystallography. So using a very, very small beam to be able to get diffraction data on very small crystals. And the, the person's name is Gephardt Schrodler, by the way. Um, so Gephardt uh, met at, and I met at a meeting and I showed him some pictures of really small crystals. And I said, we weren't getting any diffraction data um, from them. And he said, well, you prob they're probably too small. Why don't we, we have this new beamline that I'm just in the process of building, um, come to my beamline. And so uh, we brought, he actually, he, he brought his, um, his associate uh, who was really good with crystal harvesting. She came to our lab, harvested our crystals because um, to make sure that we didn't ruin them before they got to the synchrotron brought us then uh, we went to the synchrotron in Grenoble and that was the first time we saw a diffraction uh, that was really protein and, and it gave that gave me hope to um, allow a postdocs to work on the project so up until that time it was too dangerous it was too you know high risk for students or postdocs to work on it uh, but because of that I hired two amazing postdocs and they ultimately got the first structures uh, and 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 Gephardt continued to allow us to use Beamline uh, while he was still trying to get his crystal structure of the turkey beta receptor. Um, and we ended up getting our structure first, um, although he was, you know, he was part of our, our paper, but it wasn't his structure, it, you know, in the sense that his main focus had been this other protein. And um, they hadn't, you know, they, they, they succeeded probably within a couple months of, of, of our uh, succeeding, but, but we wouldn't, I, you know, we wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't, yeah, I probably wouldn't have gotten the crystal structure had he not uh, been so generous with his time and his resources. And I don't think, I don't think I'm, you know, I, I would like to say I'm, I'm, I'm like Gephardt in that regard. I'm not sure, I, you know, I, I have the same, uh, uh, you know, altruistic uh, kind of spirit that he does. But um, so, and you know, and I think there, you know, there might have been repercussions for 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 him, um, you know, being such a good guy. And but he continues to be, you know, continues to be, uh, you know, very uh, collegial and collaborative and you know, giving scientist. And speaking along the same lines of, I guess, what you might call sci these scientific values that um, people have, um, is there a specific like set of values or a specific type of culture that you try to create within like your own lab 
that you truly value? And is there like a certain way you try to teach others to do science when you're mentoring others? Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that there's a specific um, sort of culture I try to foster. Uh, up until, I would say up until about 2010, I was still fairly active at the bench. I would be, um, you know, contributing to the more difficult projects. Um, and, and so being, being in the lab with people and doing experiments when people are doing experiments, uh, what the, the way that everybody kind of worked is they worked in, in teams. Um, you would be, you would have your primary project, but you would also be working with other people on their projects. Uh, in part to mitigate risk. I mean, you, the projects are pretty high risk and if you don't succeed, you need to have some other publications, but also kind of to foster uh, um, kind of a, a collaborative spirit in the, in the lab and for people to develop, to, to learn other you know, techniques other, other than the ones they really needed for their project. So um, in general, my lab is, the, there are just a lot of connections, um, people with each other. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I think everybody feels sort of comfortable in helping other people out uh, as opposed to there are, there are labs and I'm not, you know, there are labs where, you know, each person is really working on their project and, um, and, and you know, that's their project and, and they're not really, you know, interacting with, in a, in, in a really collaborative way with other people in the lab. And what I hope that fosters is, you know, a collaborative spirit once you, once they leave and, and you know, work with other, other labs in the future. I mean, the other thing I have to say is my lab is generally very collaborative outside as well. So we have, you know, collaborations with, um, with labs at Stanford, but with labs all over the world. And I, we've really benefited from that. That's, that's great. Switching gears a bit, uh, you founded a company called Confirmet RX. I uh, hope I'm saying that correctly. A biotech company that's focused on GPCR structure and characterization. Do you enjoy having one foot in, in the research world and one foot uh, in industry? Um, and is entrepreneurship something that you kind of encourage your students to pursue as well? I wouldn't say I. I encourage them, but I don't discourage them. Let's put it that way. Uh, the, so Confometrics is a company that my wife started um, and, and, and I, we founded uh, a number of years ago with the idea of trying to uh, apply what we've learned in, in the academic lab to drug discovery. Uh, and, and I guess most recently that's use of structures to facilitate drug discovery, and it's it's actually quite um, it's quite exciting. So things that we wouldn't do in the lab, particularly, you know, largely focused on using a structure to to take a drug that is, uh, you know, just sort of a, a low affinity, maybe low efficacy compound, and 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 use and obtain structures and use that structural information. To, um, to improve the drug, uh, it, it actually works sometimes, um, you know, and, and that's really exciting. 
the, the company is really small, but we have just amazing to, uh, scientists who are, are able to do everything from, you know, uh, from basic cell culture to structural biology, both crystallography and cryo-EM. Um, I would say, you know, we, we, have a pro we have projects that we work in collaboration with companies. So we've had a collaboration with Lilly for over almost four years where we do structural biology for them and help them to develop um, new drugs for, uh, you know, for a particular disease focus. But we have our own projects as well that are funded by small business grants. And um, one of those projects in the past year has really sort of taken off and, and looks like we might have something pretty promising as a, a drug candidate. And uh, it's the first, you know, it's first time for us to get that far. So yeah, it's fun. And it doesn't, I mean, my wife does almost everything, all the work in terms of the administrative work. And I spend a couple of hours a week, uh, you know, looking at data and, and um, discussing options for you know future experiments, but so it doesn't take much of my time. But I, I you know have the opportunity to uh, to um, to see a more practical application of what we do, what we've you know learned to do at Stanford. Is that sort of practical application? Do you personally gain a sense of fulfillment from the potential to like impact patients? I guess, and more generally. Um, did you ever imagine that your research would uh, have an impact on such a broad uh, number of people? I thought that that um, structural biology, that being able to get structural information would help develop more selective drugs. That, that was, a, I, I'm not sure that's why I, I've done what I've done. In, a, in other words, I'm not sure that's driven my research. But I really did. I did believe that it would it would aid drug discovery. It hasn't probably up until more recently been as um, as valuable towards in, you know enhancing drug discovery. At least you know after the first couple of years, uh, because it was so hard to get it was so hard to get crystal structures to do iterative structures. You know, and and particularly you had to have already a high affinity compound. To stabilize the protein to get structural information. However, um, with advances in uh, cryoelectron microscopy, has you know, particularly uh, been an amazing um, advance in the field because you can get structures without crystals, and you can get them often uh, really quickly, uh, and they don't have to be have such high affinity compounds. So cryoelectron microscopy has really made a difference. And then also um, molecular dynamics, uh, it, you know, approaches in uh, the Advances in molecular dynamic simulations and, and uh, also in silico screening and libraries and silico libraries that are billions of compounds uh, have also really you know, advanced the use of structural information to get drugs. Uh, and most recently are the use of DNA encoded chemical libraries where um, you're not necessarily using a structure but you're using purified proteins to you know, pull out novel drugs. So I, I think in, in the past several years, you know, the, the impact of this kind of work on drug discovery has, has accelerated quite a bit. That's, that's fascinating. Um, as you moved into your role as a PI, and I'm sure early on your career as well, you, the, the role as a scientist is very, takes a big toll. We've spoken to many different 
uh, professors and PIs and scientists on this podcast. And we always ask, to, I like to ask them about, uh, I guess, sense of balance. I've gotten a, a big range of answers from different people. What do you think is the role in balance um, in maintaining a sense of sanity and happiness, I guess, through the long, the, a long career? You mean um, sort of work-life balance? Yeah, just, just a sense to keep yourself, I guess, sane between the long and tolling hours in the lab um, and the other things in life that make you a happy person. I don't know that I've ever consciously thought about it. I've always had uh, my family uh, as being kind of the most important thing. And in fact, um, when, when, when we moved to Stanford, my wife started medical school. So my daughter, I think was five and my son was seven. So they, they were just starting um, kindergarten and second grade. And uh, no, actually, she, my, my daughter started, uh, yeah, started her first grade. So uh, when we moved to Stanford, my wife was a, med was a medical student and, and ultimately a resident. So for the first seven or eight years, I had quite, you know, I had a lot of responsibilities and sometimes the primary caregiver, uh, uh, you know, when she was on call, uh, I would, I was a soccer mom, uh, you know, but, so I, you know, I had, uh, and it wasn't, it didn't feel forced. It just, you know, things were working out in the lab. I, I had, you know, the ability to kind of um, multitask well enough that when I was in the lab, I, I made almost, you know, the best use of my time. And then I could spend, you know, quality time with the kids. And when they were asleep, I, so it was just a matter of, of prioritizing things. And I, you know, I don't, I don't remember ever really having sort of a, a crisis that, that um, you know, I was spending too much time in the lab or um, I wasn't spending enough time. That's great to hear. And sort of as we wrap up, we like to ask our guests two sort of rapid fire questions. The first one is, what is the last book you read or what is a book that you'd recommend to our listeners? Uh, let me think. So, um, the one that I think is most interesting is, is uh, by Richard Russo. So I really like Richard Russo. Um, and I've kind of come back to him recently. So he's, you know, um, uh, he wrote uh, like Nobody's Fool and um, the, uh, the um, uh, what's the other one? Um, anyway, the, the, the one that I'm reading now is called Bridge of Size and it's, um, it's, it's really interesting and I, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, trying to think of, the, the reason I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, kind of hesitating is because I've read, uh, you know, some recent Tom Clancy novels while I'm, uh, when I'm exercising or, or, you know, out riding the bike, I, I listen to books on tape. So, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider them, you know, they're, they're books that you can listen to and, and not have to, you know, focus on very much, but, um, uh, they're great books too yes. they're very entertaining I would say <laughs> yeah 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 um, but you know I you know more, more serious novels are are a bit harder to uh, to appreciate on an audiobook right right yeah. and 
the second question we like to ask all our guests is what your coffee or tea drinking habits are. Um, rarely drink tea. It's not that I don't like it. Um, and I drink a cup of coffee a day. I'm not um, particularly, uh, you know, I, I, and I don't, I don't, I'm not that fussy about what the coffee is. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a very normal answer. We've gotten a wide range of, of answers from the, uh, the guests we've spoken to over the past few months. Um, I want to squeeze out one more question before we wrap up. Do you have maybe one piece of advice for a someone who's maybe in their undergraduate uh, or just starting their career, um, looking to, to pursue a career in research or in medicine? As an undergraduate? I guess, you know, to try to find a lab that will allow you to um, sort of, uh, you know, pick up a small project, a, a small, and I would recommend that that not be a, a, a lab that's a very big lab, um, you know, or a, a kind of a high, high profile lab. It might be best to start with, you know, a young, a younger faculty member who might welcome any kind of hands uh, and just, you know, just get the feel of what it's like doing experiments and asking questions. I think that's or great asking advice. questions and doing experiments. <laughs> well, I think that's great advice. And um, that's all we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Kobilka, for spending the time to speak with us this afternoon. Well, I can kind of resonate with that experience that Dr. Koboka talked about when he first joined his lab as a as a medical student and kind of recounted that everyone else seemed to know way more than him. That was really cool that he persisted with that though. Yeah, I, I really appreciate him sharing that because I think that's great for sci young researchers and scientists to hear because I mean like you said that that experience resonated with me a lot as well just the feeling of just not knowing what's going on and feeling completely lost but I think knowing that people who have won the Nobel Prize were in similar situations starting off, um, that can be the extra push and like inspiration you need to persist and, and just like push through that barrier. Exactly. I mean, you know, him sticking with that kind of was, you know, allowed him to discover his passion for research and for like passion for studying receptors. And, you know, imagine if he hadn't you had been discouraged initially by that and had quit or something. I mean, that, that would have been terrible. Well, yeah, it's, it's also great to know that like that's a normal feeling. It's normal to feel when you first start doing something that you're completely lost and you don't know what you're doing. But all it takes is like just persisting through and keep going. And at, at some point, you'll either understand it and, and maybe even win the Nobel Prize. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if you're still listening, uh, thanks so much. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. And as always, you can follow us on a number of different platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts at After Office Hours. We're on LinkedIn now to search up After Office Hours on LinkedIn. And of course, we're popping on the Insta game at after double underscore office hours and another quick announcement we are soon moving to youtube as well so if you enjoy watching our conversation if you think you would enjoy watching our conversations in addition to listening to them you can head over to our page after office hours on youtube and subscribe to that to stay up to date on 
new videos. Yeah, so thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on After Office Hours.